I would like to think that I'm mature enough and old enough and confident enough to not have to rely on my peers to build me up or, or give me validation in what I'm doing. But if, if I'm only doing things to see if I can do them, to see if it breaks me, then I think there is a certain sense of that to where, yeah, I, I don't think I need that anymore. Welcome to the Dark Zone, an adventure racing podcast. This is your host, Brian Gates. In event racing lingo, a dark zone is a time when due to darkness or safety, teams are paused on the course before continuing with the race. During that time, stories are exchanged, friendships are kindled, spirits are restored, and teams have a chance to prepare for the next challenge. We hope that you make good use of this dark zone. We're glad that you're here. Today's guest is Sean LeMaster of 361 Adventures. Sean is an avid adventure racer, race director, and long-distance bikepacker. He brings the perspective of his years in the sport to today's episode as well as his enjoyment of long-distance pursuits outside of adventure racing. Thank you to Sean for joining us for this episode. We're also happy to announce that Tanzi Navigation has come on as a sponsor of The Dark Zone. You can learn all about them at www.tanzinavigation.org. That's T-A-N-Z navigation.org, all one word. Listeners of The Dark Zone can enter to win a free copy of Mark Latanzi's book, Squiggly Lines, by emailing me at brian at ardarkzone.com. Squiggly Lines is the preeminent guidebook for navigation using a map and a compass. Thank you to Mark, Laura, and to everybody at Tanzi for coming on board. Again, thank you for joining the Dark Zone. Today's world doesn't lack for ways to grab your time and attention. We're grateful to have you as a listener. Thank you again to Sean for joining us. Enjoy. So welcome to the, the Dark Zone Adventure Racing Podcast. This is your host, Brian Gatens, joined by Sean LeMaster of 361 Adventures. Uh, 361 Adventures, it comes out of the uh, northern Kentucky, southern Ohio, West Virginia, southeast, beautiful part of the country. Sean, where are you guys located? Uh, tell me where I'm wrong. No, you're, you're correct. We're out of uh, Kentucky, actually grew up in Kentucky, eastern Kentucky, and now our uh business just my brother and i were out of uh kind of northern kentucky more so than anything and 361 adventures i believe has had a long tradition of putting on one great race a year or several races a year this year you focused on the fig am i correct that is correct yeah um we dialed it back we used to put on six to seven races a year um back in the prime um but then you know time constraints um i think you probably heard this from race directors before a lot of race direction more so a passion project um so you know we focus on the fig now and we just held that uh, last weekend actually it had the race go uh, exceptional we actually had a record turnout for us around 150 racers uh, a new location for the fig usually it's in a natural bridge um, red river gorge area we wanted to kind of move racers away from the kind of busy weekend roads and just give them more uh, off-road options to explore. So we had it at Caburn Lake. Um, exceptional turnout, weather was phenomenal. And I would say by and large, it's the most compliments that we've ever gotten um, post-race. So super pleased with how it went. And the FIG is the longest running race in Kentucky? <laughs> it is. Um, we did not uh, start the FIG. We actually, it was handed down from us from Stephanie Ross. This is the 19th, well, this was the 19th year that it was Hosted and then uh, next year will be the 20th anniversary. So we'll have to do something um, extra spectacular for the um, 20th. Yeah, we had uh, Steph on as, a, as an earlier guest on the Dark Zone, and she talked a lot about the race and it was held in 
in a different part of the state, but then it was time to bring to a different location. So what, so a large part of our audience are obviously adventure racers, people who enjoy hearing about races, hearing about the type of terrain, the challenges, topography. When someone came to the FIG this year, what did they, it was a 12 hour race, am I correct? Yep. And what did they experience over those 12 hours? Was it a linear course? Did they have choice? Was it paddling, things like that? Yeah, so if at all possible, um, us as like course designer, race directors, we love setting up a course where there are as many, um, where we force as many decisions as possible. So we were able to do it with this um, course, mainly because of the terrain and location. Um, so it's a departure from um, previous figs and even a lot of other races where we um, we did not present them the maps until the prologue. Um, so they really had very little information um, by design. They showed up for the prologue, got their maps, and then it was pretty much an open course, Brian. So uh, any points, any order, uh, no specified mode of travel. Um, so it was really a free-for-all race, which is what we kind of love doing. It was a big course. Um, only five teams, I think, cleared it. Um, and yeah, lots and lots of options. I'm not actually, I'm fairly confident not two teams attacked the course in the same way. So uh, also departure from the fig, usually it's a short paddle either down dragging your boat down the Red River or there's a few small lakes in the area. Um, we had all of Cave Run Lake to recreate on. So um, some racers paddle more than, more than others. We had the whole lake. We had like legit single track for uh, the bike points if you wanted to get them by bike. Um, and then, yeah, we had a huge uh, trek course as well if you wanted to get those on foot. I know a lot of racers kind of plucked off the edge points along the shore by boat. So that's kind of how the race went. Uh, big course, lots and lots of options. What was the split among racers in terms of experience versus beginner versus mid-packs? Yeah, um, so we had, like I said, around 150 racers. I want to say maybe... 30-ish were uh, completely new racers, and we know that. We just ask them um, during registration, are you a new racer? So at least, uh, yeah, probably around 30 admitted they were completely new to the sport. Um, had several successes with new racers as well. We had one team, um, four racers, completely new and never raced before. And even though, you know, they came in and they were like, here, you can reuse our passport because it has so few uh, punches in it smiles like absolutely had a blast out there and it's rewarding for us when you know we hear the affirmative that it's not even going to take them two or three days they're like yeah i'm going to do this again which is awesome for us because usually you have to let it sink in and let the bruises and bumps and exhaustion um, wear off at least a couple days before you commit um, to another go at it yeah we tend to find that the people who are enamored with the sport are usually on the way home in the car if they're the passenger, they're chatting with the driver while they're looking at their phone and they're looking for the next race someplace else. Um, many a guest on the Dark Zone has talked about how they went out there inexperienced, under-trained, under-equipped, got absolutely clobbered and loved it and couldn't get back out the race there soon enough. So good on you for having 20% of your race be brand new racers. Yeah, yeah, we're, yeah, we're stoked about it. And like, same thing, like that's how my brother and I got into it as well. We showed up to our first adventure race, got absolutely walloped. Like we did not understand the, physicality and just uh what it took to be you know not even good at the sport just mid-pack at the sport so it beat us down um but yeah uh, you know next week we're looking for the the next race so 
And so the with 20% of the racers being brand new, 80% were mid-pack, were experienced. What was the feedback on the course from those who've seen races before? Did they did they like the placement of the checkpoints? Did they find them relatively far apart? Was there any challenging navigation or terrain? What was the real challenge that the experienced racers came across? Yeah, definitely the real challenge for this one was the um, route decisions. How to, especially given the given the format where they did not receive their maps, um, you know, it was on the clock. So, you know, there's a, a taking give there as to whether you want to spend the time planning your route or just, you know, run and gun. So I think by and large, it was definitely how do we go about this in the most efficient manner? Um, navigation wasn't particularly challenging just because the terrain in that area is so um, prominent. You know, there's nothing too sneaky. You know, we would try to find a few parallel features to tuck a checkpoint you know, here and there. But, you know, by and large, you're looking at, you know, really steep, you know, reentrant size and hilltops. So navigation wasn't that big of an issue. I would say for the mid packers, um, definitely playing the time game uh, came in, came, came as a factor just because it's hard to <laughs> get your map on the clock and then also do all the route math and what should I actually go for? What do I have time to go for? And when should I pull the plug and head back to the finish? That's a brand new dynamic. We, we saw the same dynamic this year in the, um, in the event racing national championships where, where teams got the maps with very little time to plan before the race when the race started uh, a common feedback point. Some people wish they'd spent more time with the maps. We wish they spent, you know, another 15 minutes looking at the maps before running out of, you know, the, the uh, race start and all of a sudden being full of adrenaline. And we all know that when the heart rate goes up, the brain power goes down. Right. And we've seen that time and time again. Um, and you make a good point about the, the terrain and the navigation. One thing I hear repeatedly is that when you race in certain parts of the country, because the terrain, the terrain is so big, big mountains, big re-entrance, big water, the navigation is easier, but the land is a lot harder to travel across. And then in other parts of the country, the land is not as steep, not as hard, but the navigation is a lot harder because it's less prominent. So it's interesting how that works for various races, various times and the physicality. And, and I did a breakdown race that you had back in 2015 and this was in West, West Virginia, Virginia, West Virginia border. And I remember just being a brutal piece of land in terms of the elevation gain and the ups and the downs. The steepest road that I ever rode down was during that race in 2015 coming off the start. I couldn't believe how we were flying straight downhill. Yeah, that that's a particularly crazy part of the world. Uh, breaks interstate park. Yeah, and I agree. I don't, <laughs> I'm surprised um, they get by with making roads that steep. Seems like it would be, a, you know crime against the DOT or something, but yeah, pretty impressive. The uh, fig wasn't nearly that steep, but again, just so prominent that yeah, navigation, not, not super challenging. I would say, unless you're, you know, new to the sport or, you know, just kind of figuring out orienteering, um, not that challenging, but again, it comes back down to the route decisions. Do, do you go up and over? Do you go around? What's the, what's the balance there? So we saw our more experienced racers, um, really excel more so than other years. Um, not that they don't usually win, but you can tell the the guys that are quick, you know, quick with the maps, quick with just visualizing all the ups and downs and do I run the ridge? Um, I think they really, really shined in this race. Well, clearly you did something right because you had five teams cleared the course overall. So it was a challenging course. 20% were newcomers. They really enjoyed the race itself. So you, you laid out a buffet, if you will, of choices, right? Route choices, checkpoint cho choices, and people had a great time. And I, I think that your decision to make it a, a smorgasbord, right? Pick where you want to go. 
put the pressure a lot easier on the new erasures because they felt the course was there to be sampled as opposed to, I have to be here by a certain time or I'm going to miss a cutoff or I have to take a different route back to the, to the finish. Were there any teams that needed additional assistance Any teams that really struggled out there mightily or did everybody just sort of make their way through? Um, no, they did really well. Um, so we only had one mandatory point um, to kind of force a paddle, but I mean, it was, it was very, um, it wasn't, it, it was very reasonable. I think it was, maybe 5k total, um, to get that point. And they, you know, it was set up to where right off the bat, they could go out there and paddle and get it where they could, you know, bike or whatever. Um, we only had one, um, solo racer come in late. Um, but to his, <laughs> to his credit, he had completely, um, broken his derailleur off the bike and he had to give us a call at like 710 and he was fairly lost. So we worked him through that situation. Um, and he got in at like 1030. So <laughs> he was the only one that was, um, kind of lost, broken late. We had a couple, you know, minorish injuries, but no, no team calling us saying like, this is this is, this is stupid. We're done. Come and pick us up, which is, <laughs> we're going to call it a, a success, Brian. Yeah. That's always a victory, right? When, when the, when the, uh, when the racers don't insist that you come and find them on the course and transport them back to the start finish, that's a victory. So declare victory and go home. So the, so congratulations on having the fig be so successful because it really is a, it's a race royalty, if you will, right? It's a long race. It's been held for a lot of years. It has a, a warm place in a lot of people's hearts. For the 20th edition, have you even begun to talk about what that's going to look like, or are you going to sit back a little bit and evaluate the race and make a decision then? Yeah, we'll have to chew on it a bit. Um, you know, I was talking with my guys and even some other racers. They were like, you know, we love we love it here, referring to Cave Run. Um, are you going to hold it here next year? Um, which was interesting. Like, when we put it out there, I thought for sure we'd get pushback. Like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> you can't move the fig. The fig is Red River Gorge. Like, what are you doing? But not not a single person, not a single comment about, you know, huh, well, this isn't right. Um, and then similarly, after the race, people wanted to come back to Cave Run. And I think it's not because they're tired of Red River Gorge. It's just that Cave Run is such a great place uh, to hold an adventure race. You have all the paddling you want. You have some actual single track to play on, more you know, foot sections and anyone would ever want to include in a 12 hour race. So it's a really great venue. Um, so we'll have to think about it. It seems like for the 20th anniversary, you know, the fig is quintessentially Red River Gorge. So maybe we should <laughs> have it at its, at its home location. Um, but we'll have to see. We'll, we'll think on that one. Well, it's always a one race at a time, right? And that's one thing we learned adventure racing. It's one checkpoint at a time, one race at a time, one T at a time and going that direction. So, not only has 361 Adventures successfully hosted the FIG this year, for years you did the race called the Breakdown. Talk a bit about those races. Yeah, so back in what I will call our prime, this is when, um, not that we were more passionate about it, just had a little more bandwidth to, you know, put on, we had a series called the Unbridled Race Series, um, which we put on in Kentucky State Parks for years. Um, but then other than the FIG, one of our kind of, flagship headliner races that we're really proud of was the breakdown adventure race um so that started out as a 12-hour race and then we had several iterations of it from 12 hours to 24 hours um to even a four-day expedition race down there so yeah that's that's definitely one of the one of the races that we're really proud of even uh, you know personally i would say more so than the fig because we 
while we love the fig, we didn't create the fig, you know, Stephanie passed it on to us and, you know, we would like to think that we, that we do it right and we do a good job with it, but it's not, it, it was never our, our baby. Um, whereas the breakdown, you know, that was, that was original. No one had ever raced there before. So that one holds a, holds a, you know, special place in our AR hearts. Talk a bit about the breakdown bike packing route. Yeah. So we, uh, we love the brakes and then we skipped a year putting on the breakdown adventure race. Um, and that kind of killed the forward from momentum as far as hosting an adventure race there. And it, more so than anything, um, there's only so many options that a race director can host a race there on of. It's, you know, they call it the Grand Canyon of the South. Everything's kind of hemmed in. And there's only, you know, two or three corridors that we that we can play on there that, you know, are feasible. So we had explored, I think, about every option that we could in every direction. So it was like, well, there's, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what else new to do here. So we skipped a year um, and then we still love the area. So we thought, well, we know it really well. There was a, another race kind of west of the breakdown called the War Daddy. And it's uh, built as like the hardest mountain bike race in Kentucky. And it's put on um, by uh, Trollsick. John Maggard is the actual um, dude. And, you know, I'd, I'd seen it kind of pop up a few times. I'd never actually um, got to race it. Um, but it was like 65, 70 miles kind of on the west side of break. So I ended up connecting with him. I was like, you know, here's what we're going for. I want to create this bike packing route that goes from um, breaks interstate park, goes over in your neck of the woods and kind of loops back to breaks interstate park. And he was all about it. He's a you know great guy from the area. Um, so between he and I and input from others, uh, we designed um, a 300 plus mile uh, bike packing route that takes off from breaks interstate park there and does a, pretty uh full-on uh loop um all the way back lots of <laughs> lots of good climbing gravel um asphalt pine mountain trail um, so yeah any any bike packers out there one if you are a bike packer um check it out and if you're not a bike packer <laughs> i'd love to steer you toward that direction because other than adventure racing it is by and large the uh, the greatest thing i've i've found as a you know adventure guy the, the bike packing crowd is a lot of connection to adventure racing along the way. If I remember correctly, when I read through the notes on, on the bike packing route, which I remember being excited for in March of 2020, and I planned on coming down in April of 2020 and giving it a shot by April of 2020, nobody was going anywhere in the world. Um, it's like 43,000 feet of gain. That's yeah, it's uh correct. 43, about 330 miles. Um, yeah, it's a hard one. Um, Doug Ritzer, another um, adventure racing uh, staple. <laughs> He's been adventure racing quite a while, actually pretty good at it. Um, he and I did it to both vet it and just get it on the books. And it, um, I think we were right at three and a half days is what it took us. Um, so, yeah, we, you know, other podcasts, other introductions of it. Uh, there's still a challenge out there for anyone to throw down a time in under two days. We'll mail them. Um, some Oveja Negra, they're a bikepacking company out of Colorado. Um, they hosted, um, not hosted, kind of sponsored and um, amped us up um, this year and last year. So challenge is still out there. If anybody can ride it in under two days, then 
go for it. Good for them. And I'll make certain I'll put a link in the show notes to, to your, your website on the way in. And I, I do want to give a credit to the fact that you've adopted part of the War Daddy course, which may be the best name for a race ever. War Daddy. What a name for a, for a, now is that a mountain bike race or a bike packing race? Yeah, it's mountain bike. Yeah. I think it's 60, 60 miles or so. And those um, 60 miles around the, the breakdown route. Yeah. Yeah. I think most of them are actually, um, it's in like the Redbird Crest area of uh, South, uh, South Southern Kentucky. Um, yeah. It's, and he hosts that every year. So, you know, we kind of incorporated that into the breakdown route. So, you know, if, if the word Eddie is the hardest race in Kentucky, add like whatever, 250 miles <laughs> and then you have the breakdown. So a, tr- a true, uh, someone's ears just perked up by the way, in, in podcast land, but they heard the hardest race in Kentucky and they heard an additional 200 plus miles and they've turned to their calendar and they've begun to flip through their calendar and say, when can I come down and give this a shot? And I think that it, my, my experience of being with breaks in a state park is breaks is a beautiful, not only is it a great location to, to ride and race from very hospitable cabins on site. A lot of, uh, there's some civilization nearby. It, it, it will breaks continue to be the host site for the beginning of the breakdown. It will be. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, I always like to give a shout out to Austin Bradley. He was a superintendent is the superintendent there. And when my wife and I um, first showed up to scout the location, like you said, like full on hospitality, like, yes, what, whatever you need, however we can help you, um, we're here for you. And that has continued, um, you know, since that first you know evening we showed up there to talk to Austin. So, yeah. And it's easy. Like it's easy for one. It's easy because it's a loop Two, It's easy because like you said, they have the lodge there, restaurant. Um, if you're not into that campsites, if you're, um, on the other, <laughs> other side, high end side of it, they have some really nice cabins. So it's just super easy. And, and how nice it is for you to, to come on the podcast and talk about working with a land manager that is excited for it, that wants people there. I mean, you talk to many race directors and I've had the opportunity to, to work alongside land managers and different government entities and it runs the gamut, right? There are some, some government entities, some land managers that can't do enough for, for any member of the outdoor community, adventure racers, bike packing, whatever it may be, orienteering, whatever it is, they can't do enough. And they begin with an attitude of, well, let's make this happen. Let's figure it out. And on the other end, there are people who as if they just pulled the gates down around the land and they don't want to work alongside race directors. Have you found that experience in your own planning over the years? Yeah. And it's, you know, it's like personalities. It's, it's all on who you get on the other side of the phone or the email that interacts with you. Um, and yeah, we, we, you know, we've had our hurdles with, you know, obstructionists that they just don't, they don't want to deal with it. Um, you know, from preventing from the forest service to that type of thing, uh, but then you, you know, you have people like Austin from breaks that, you know, <laughs> it just changes your perspective. It only takes, you know, one or two positive interactions, you know, to kind of make you forget about all the, the negative ones of, you know, getting permits or jump through, you know, hoops and all the rigmarole that a lot of racers, yeah, they just, <laughs> they're not aware of what all it takes to, to get things like this permitted. So, you know, we'll have people come up to us and they'll be like, oh, you know, you guys should put on a race here. Or, you know, you should do this and this. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that sounds, that sounds great, but that's probably not going to, not going to work from a permitting standpoint. So yeah, it's been shared before on the podcast with, with other race directors on board. They talk a lot about it's essential to build those relationships early before you have to ask for things. 
right, to talk to a land manager and say, listen, we're considering putting a race on here. Here's our general thoughts. What do you think? And having them work alongside you, as with any human nature, they would respond poorly to being told we have a plan and it's written in stone and you can't make us change it, right? So it's that negotiation along the way, which is not unlike in an adventure race itself, when your team is lost and upside down and the, the maps don't make sense and you're cold and you're tired and you're hungry. What about your own adventure racing experience? What have you had the chance to do? Where have you raced? Um, yeah, so I've probably raced and <laughs> I, I always say my, my years are plus or minus three to five because my memory is so terrible. I would say I've probably raced, um, I don't know, 10 to 15 years, um, started out with smaller races. Actually, first one was <clears throat> a 12 hour race at East Fork in Kentucky, put on by Topo Adventure Sports and fell in love with it from there. Um, I want to say maybe two years later, I did my first expedition race in Untamed. It was Untamed New England. Do you remember the year? Uh, I want to say <laughs> 07. 07. Okay. So Untamed. Oh, so, and it was a multi-day expedition race. Yeah. I think it was four days. Um, and actually, the guy that put on the Eastwork Challenge, the very first adventure race that I did, um, he asked if I wanted to do Untamed. I was like, well, I think it's too big for me. Um, what do you think? He was like, no, you're good. I was like, okay, <laughs> so, sounds good. <laughs> Let's do it. And I love how he makes, a, he makes a, a, he commits 96 hours of your life to being <laughs> paddling and running and trekking and navigating. He's like, you're fine. You're, you're fine. You're good. Don't worry about it. Yeah. It, I mean, it still remains the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, and I say that from not because I haven't done harder adventures or harder races, but it was hard for me because I was so new to the sport and just didn't have the the mental game to just, to just deal with what all was going on. Um, so like right off the bat, <clears throat> we had chosen to get cheaper uh, pack rafts instead of, you know, a package or whatever. So right, right in the first hour, we had shredded um, two of our boats. So we were on a four person team. <laughs> so uh, two boats had no bottom whatsoever. <laughs> and it was just complete carnage on the river. Um, of course, you know, some of the smarter teams or teams that didn't have teams that had lesser pack rafts, there was the option to trek along the river. But like, I don't even think that was on our radar, Brian. Like, we were just like, well, we have these pack rafts. Like, we're obviously, gonna, we're going to get in the water. We're going to go. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, what else would we do? So anyway, we had shredded our rafts um, in like the first hour. And I mean, there's just so many stories from that. But like a few of the highlights, I remember where we were only down to two rafts. And, you know, for our new racers and aren't familiar with pack rafts, they're, they're intentionally made for one, one person, right? <laughs> and they barely fit one person. Um, but it was me and uh, Paula Pearson in one pack raft. <laughs> we were all T-Rexed down trying to like paddle across this lake because there was no other option to, you know, get across the lake. So super inefficient, piled on each other. We uh, dumped our packs all in one raft. It was just a, it was a scene. We were obviously like the newer or, you know, the least less experienced team um, search for a checkpoint with maybe four or five other teams for, oh my gosh, I want to say like nine, 10 hours grid search the whole hillside, like no team could find it. So um, ended up getting short course on that one, you know, but the takeaway um, is, man, we still had a blast. Like we still had an absolute blast, even when we got short course and, you know, we're biking around back to the finish. It's like, Hey, 
you know, you want to stop for ice cream? Like we're, we're not really on the clock anymore. It's like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Let's, let's get two scoops and a waffle cone and, you know, let's, let's finish this thing out. Right. So, it, you know, I'm, I'm glad I did it because it opened up the door to me knowing that there's a lot, a lot bigger adventures out there and that, if I can handle that as, you know, with my experience that I can probably tackle, um, tackle the bigger stuff. When someone, when someone jumps into an event, like a, a, an expedition race, and it's worth pointing out for the listeners out there that the, that challenge is relative, right? So one person's four day expedition race challenge may be equivalent to somebody's 24 hour challenge, 30 hour challenge, things like that. And it sounds like you follow that regular pattern of you didn't realize you could do those things until you actually tried to go and do those things. And you didn't wait around until you were, you were ready until you got into the race. Did you feel you were ready for that race or could you have ever been ready for that race without doing it? Yeah, I don't think, no, I, I never felt like I was ready just because I knew it was going to be a show. Um, but, you know, I had like, this is back when I was doing triathlons as well. So the year previous I'd done an Ironman. So I was like, well, maybe physically, maybe I'm kind of ready for it. Um, sleep deprivation was unknown to me. Um, so it was like all of these unknowns, but, you know, I had three other teammates backing me up. So I was like, well, whatever happens, whatever goes south, at least I have a team and, you know, we'll, we'll be fine. And which that was the case. I remember um, one like late night uh, trek leg, like we were on two hours of sleep on like day late in day two or three. And my feet had just completely fallen apart, um, blisters everywhere. And I was, and um, for those that have never recreated in Maine <laughs> during that time of year, just mosquitoes and black flies absolutely everywhere. Those so are actually soon, the two, those are the two state birds of Maine, by the way. <laughs> I would believe it. So we, as soon as you would stop for anything to eat or to lube or whatever, the, the swarms would just like come in on you. <clears throat> yeah. And it was terrible. So, but my feet were falling apart and I just, I couldn't mentally function anymore. So I was like, listen guys, I'm going to have to take care of this. So we stop on the hillside, I pull off my shoes and I take my feet pretty heavily and like, <laughs> that's preventative, but it actually didn't work very well. So I'm pulling off this tape and like layers of skin are coming off with this tape. And I'm like, like, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, black fires are like eating me. And I'm like, why, why am I here? Like, <laughs> What circumstances have led me to be on the hillside, pulling skin <laughs> off my feet, getting swarmed by these, you know, critters? And I was just like, what <laughs> decisions have I made in my life that brings me here right now? Right. And I don't know. It's it's hard to know where to put it when you've never been in that situation before. But, you know, you kind of fix yourself up, up and keep on going. And then, you know, if you need to fall back 20 meters off the tail end and have yourself a little pity party cry. And then I guess just keep going. I, I don't know what other, I don't know what other option there is. So yeah, that's, we that's were, where I was at with it. We, we, we were day three in Scotland and we were just tired and beat up. And it was a long, long trek. And I'd fallen off the back a little bit and I couldn't, I couldn't not fall down. I just kept falling down on this trail and I just, I just kept, it was the weirdest thing. And, and I let my three teammates get ahead of me a little bit. And I gave myself a bit of a pep talk. Like you're here voluntarily. You chose to be here. You trained for this. You don't get to complain about it. like, kind of like knuckle up a little bit and let's go. And how that little self-talk really kind of helped a little bit, but that was dark. Like, that was a really hard place to be. And, and, and as always too, a little bit of sugar, a little bit of caffeine always helps also, but like, holy cow. Holy cow. And so that was two years into your racing experience that you, you took a shot at Untamed New England. Was that your only expedition race or did you do others? 
Uh, that was <clears throat> that was my first expedition race. So since then, um, I've probably done a half dozen. Did um, Cowboy Tough a few years, Untamed again. <clears throat> Just did Expedition Oregon last year. Um, so yeah, I have a few um, expedition races under my belt, and then some other kind of bigger um, side adventures that are outside of the AR world. So let's let's talk for a second about the other expedition races, then let's go into your other your bigger adventures, right? Because you're it sounds like it sounds like adventure racing is, has checked off a huge box for you, but you didn't stop just there, which is not uncommon. So so the Cowboy Tough and Expedition Oregon, how did you find those experiences? Did you find the races, the expedition little races to be still be as challenging? Do you do you build a muscle in yourself? Like how do you how do you go to an expedition race now? What's your attitude like? What's your physical what's your physicality like? Yeah, much much better than um, expedition race number one. And I think some of it is just the physical preparation, knowing how to train and just be prepared. Um, but then a lot of it too, is like we were talking about just the mental aspect of it to where you've been there. Like, you know, there's hard times you've probably had harder. So it's just like, okay, I can turn the key off for X number of hours and just, just do this. So yeah, it does get, like you said, dark and hard and all that stuff. But I think once you've done it and you've come out the other side, then you have the oomph to to know it'll get better. Like yeah, you know, every every experience you do compounded your ability to do the next experience with even more of a challenge. Um, I also find too that in, the, in those races, what I've what I've experienced and what I've seen and I've learned is that when you start coming apart the seams a little bit, turn to your stomach first. Like try to get some food and use some nutrition in you. That helps your attitude. I always like to say that your stomach betrays you first, then your brain betrays you, and then your body betrays you. And if you take care of those things in reverse order, you're going to be okay. Um, I see that very often. It sounds like from Maine, Cowboy Tough, Oregon, you've done other other Untamed New England's in there, but you mentioned how you went from that into bigger adventures, that you stepped outside the adventure racing world. What else have you done that's that's big and fun and mean and nasty and challenging? Yeah, so bikepacking, um, like we already mentioned, um, I won't say that I retired from adventure racing, like we were always putting on races, but um, maybe three, three, four years ago, I was kind of moving away from um, structured ARs and expedition races and wanted to kind of create my own adventures, um, kind of do things freestyle. Um, so that's when me and a couple of buddies landed on uh, bikepacking. And like, to me, that, that fulfilled a, a, I don't know, it, it, it was something that wasn't wasn't as prescribed suffering. Like I could, I could choose my own level of um, hurt and, you know, distance and all of that. It wasn't, you know, this rush of being on the clock or, you know, I have to do this now. It's like, well, there's this route. I know what it entails. I know it's going to be hard, but I can do it on my own, own terms. So that's how I landed on um, bikepacking. Um, and, you know, I, I, I say that I, softly retired from adventure racing, but I just did Expedition Oregon last year because um, Doug Ritzer kind of brought me out of retirement. He was like, you know, I've been wanting to do this for a long time. Let's let's race this together. So I was like, well, you know, been racing is known for some like legit pack rafting, which is not my, like, oddly enough, I have a fear of, of, of dying. <laughs> So it's like, well, I can handle, I can walk a mountain bike, right? If, if something's too sketchy or whatever, like no shame in walking my, my bike around. It's like when you're in a pack raft or if you're rafting and you don't have the skills to, to do it, it's easy to say, well, I'm going to get out and, and, you know, scout this drop or rapid or whatever. 
but you know how that goes. Like yeah. <laughs> it, it gets it gets it gets high consequence very quickly. You're you're in a race, so your judgment is impaired because you're looking to go faster. Like there's a whole other factor to come together. And for the listeners out there, Expedition Oregon, which is an amazing race, and, and Jason and Chelsea and everyone in Ben does a great job with that. They build themselves, rightfully so, I believe, as America's toughest race. And you're probably alluding to this year's edition, which started with the how many mile pack ref to start? Um, it was a 62 mile yeah. pack raft, I think it was. <laughs> gotcha. So, so, so this is a, a four day race, five day, I think it was four day race. And next thing you know, welcome aboard. By the way, you're getting in your pack raft and you're going to be on this river for 60 miles in a pack raft at the start of this race. Yeah. I mean, that's like, again, it's like no regrets. I'm super stoked I did it and actually to prepare for it. So, um, you know, I, I came in with the, I came, I, when I signed up to the race, I came in with a great fear of, of paddling. Um, well, and paddling rapids, right. I've had a few, um, incidences on like guided raft trips where either I or my, um, party members have come out of the boats and it's just been like, wow, that was close. Um, so I came in to the registration of, I like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm physically dreading pack rafting, which is not a good feeling to have. Like, like you said, you're doing this voluntarily, <laughs> like you're paying money, investing time, training, all of this to do an adventure. But I had this, this dread of like the pack raft legs. And I was like, well, I'll just get through those so I can, <laughs> you know, play around on my bike and hike around in, in Oregon, which is one of my favorite States. So I was like, well, you know, whatever. And then I was like, no, like this, this isn't, this isn't driving. This doesn't make sense. So, um, ended up taking just kind of throwing myself into it to, to learn the, to learn the skill better, at least to the level to where I wasn't going into it with like a complete gut dread. Like, yeah, I'm not the best um, paddler now, but at least I can go into it with confidence that, you know, I'm, I'm not getting myself foolishly into something that's over my head. So, yeah, you know, I did a swiftwater rescue course and um, hooked up with a experienced you know, paddler to actually run, you know, two and plus two and three rapids in my, in, in the pack raft that I use. So that was the biggest change for me last year was having that fear and coming up with a game plan because, <laughs> you know, directing races, that's like part of it is logistics. And how do we, how do we reduce the failure points in this race to where it's going to go off smoothly? So I looked at it like that and I was like, well, I signed up for this. I shouldn't be dreading any leg of it before I'm even in it. So that's just kind of one, I don't know if it's advice or just something I'm proud of. It's like, it was a fear. I tackled it, overcame it. And then I actually, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the pack raft, even though it was that first leg was way too long and our shoulders were numb. I think it took us like 12, 14 hours to get to the TA after that. It was, it was fine. Like didn't come out of the boat. Like it was all good. Actually, like zero stress <laughs> after all that worrying right yeah, yeah I, I can relate to that my much like pack rafting is to you i and i'm not a big fan of going into the ground right and so my my big concern is going into a race with is, is it going to be a caving section hmm. and i really don't i really i could do heights well i do speed okay i'm okay with water like but i before i went off to scotland i i remember obsessing about there being a caving site because there was a caving section in the previous iterations for Itera in both um, in both Ireland as well as in Wales. And I was 
really, I would, I went to bed every night for like six months thinking about this caving section. And then we get to Scotland and they unveil, they unveil the, uh, the race map. They draw the race map and there's not a single cave on there. And I couldn't believe it. I'd worried about it for months. And it's interesting that you talk about the idea. And this is a really good thing to, to, to zero in on. And I'm glad that you mentioned it because, because as adventure racers, people who, who see us on the outside didn't think that we're fearless. And they think that we do these things that are intense and, and scary. Um, and that we, we, we dive into it with this, this sort of laissez-faire attitude of devil may care and off we go. When in reality, you talk about your concern about being caught in, in bad water, right? Which gets high consequence really quickly. My concern about going into the ground, which I'm working on by, by going to my, my friend's place down in Virginia and actually going into the caves down there to work on that. It's acknowledging the fear that we have and then getting a plan together to address that fear. And then when the race comes, it is what it is. Yeah. And that's, that's super, super valid. Like me personally, I am, I am very averse to injury and like my, my game plan, like I am not fearless in the least, like opposite of. So, you know, I try to match my skill set to what I'm doing. So yeah, I mean, I ride some, what in my mind is sketchy stuff or paddle stuff that's right on the edge of my skill set. But, but, oh gosh, now like, if <laughs> fearless is not at all a word that I would use to describe myself analytical. Yeah. Like yeah, right, right. self-preservation. Absolutely. Fearless, right. and, no. And I have to tell you, if, if I was, if I jumped into a race and if I was randomly paired with a teammate and if he or she told me that they had no fear and they were fearless, I'd be scared to race with that person. Yeah. Rightly so. <laughs> yeah. Right. Cause yeah, I got to take us in the yeah. direction that we're going to, we're going to be upside down pretty quickly, pretty soon. So that's, 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 I'm, I appreciate you talking about your, your challenges at Expedition Oregon, which by the way, was a, a, a crusher of a race from what I understand. That was a hard, hard race this year. Yeah. It was, you know, designed to, to live up to the name hardest race. Um, and it did, I mean, it was, I can't imagine me doing that race as my first expedition race. Like I did untamed. Like, I just don't even know where you would put any of that. And actually the, um, scariest moment I've ever had in an adventure race was repelling off of, um, off of the, um, cliff there that they had with our bikes on our back. It was just, yeah, it was just not, didn't work out for me very well. So definitely a scary moment, like <laughs> bike on your back, trying to repel off of this cliff on like day four with, you know, five hours of sleep, just completely had. And it's like, well, huh, my, am I, what's like, what's going to happen here? Am I, am I going to black out right. and just dangle here? I, I don't know. I'm not sure what to do about this. Yeah. You, you, end up, you end up waking up in the ambulance, right? One yeah. of those things, right? But you made it through that. So you mentioned you've done some pretty big bike packing trips. Um, a lot of our listeners, well, I, I think it's, Good to point out, and many adventure racers, people come into the sport through endurance sports, triathlon, they come in through marathoning, they dip their toe in the adventure racing water, and they love it. And they find that two things happens. One, adventure racing ruins them for other races because the other races tell you what direction to go. And the lack of navigation throws them off. The other thing is that they, they graduate from adventure racing, they say to themselves, I have a lot of capacity, I have a lot of skill now, and I want to go do my own adventures, make up my own thing. And that's a very common trend that we see in adventure racing. People continue adventure racing. They'll go to Expedition Oregon. They'll do one or two big races a year. But those three weekends, they're just, they're in the Adirondacks and they're doing figure eight loops or they're going on bike packing trips. We have a friend going to Rainier this year. We have another friend who's doing some major backcountry skiing. You branched into the bike packing. What routes have you done with the, with the bike packing? 
Yeah, and I, I think what you said is definitely true. The trajectory of a lot of racers we talk to, and you know, my, myself as well. I'll, like I'm now, I'm I'm good to do one expedition race a year, um, but most of my other time is spent doing my own adventures and own things. So, yeah. So next year on the calendar, my one expedition race for the year will be Rootstock's uh, race in Pennsylvania. The endless so that'll mountains. Be my one expedition. Yep, endless mountains. So already registered for that one. Um, but then the you know the bikepacking scene. So the you know, I've done a lot. If anybody is new to it, bikepacking.com is where you want to be. Um, dozens and dozens of routes are listed, um, along with a lot of in- instruction on how to get started and all that good stuff. But started picking routes off of um, bikepacking.com. And actually, the, ver- the very first route um, that we did, I think it was called the um, Gillow River Ramble in Arizona. And coming from the adventure racing world, um, I don't know if it's, I wouldn't call it cockiness, but just like, you know, I got this, like this, this won't be a thing because we're adventure racers. Like, it, is it really going to be harder than adventure racing? And it was definitely an eye opener. <laughs> Bike packers are some really hard people and they're creating hard routes that will really um, put you to the test if you're trying to do it um, kind of in their suggested time. So it was like, wow, huh? Who knew that bike packers were you know, as hard as adventure racers. Like I, I certainly didn't know that. So that was another appeal um, to it of, wow, this is, this is a thing. This is a, a legit, like, let's see what we can do here. So started picking off a bunch of routes on there, like the stagecoach 400 and some of the higher profile ones. Um, a few years ago, um, me and Doug, we did the Colorado trail together, which is like one of the quintessential bikepacking routes that um, you got to do if you're really into it, which we were. Um, I'm the tour divide this year if things work out as it should. Um, and yeah, the, the like tour divide is from if, it, if Canada opens up, that's Banff all the way down to Southern Arizona, correct? It's like 3,500 miles. Yeah, all the way, um, all the way across the U.S., north to south. So that's uh, another one of those routes that if you're a bike packer and you can make it happen, you pretty much got to make it happen because it's incredible. So I have a few friends that have done it as well. Um, so yeah, hopefully that'll happen this year, but it's, it's kind of that movement away from organized structured time constraint, um, events and more so, huh, let's, let's, let's see what we can do on our own. It is pretty cool too, with the, with the capacity and the skill you build over adventure racing, the, the mental capacity of, of being able to put up with endurance events and feeling strong there, knowing how to manage yourself, your sleep, your food, your survival. It gives you a certain, it gives you a skill set that you've honed over time that you could roll out your driveway with your bike packed with gear and you could pedal wherever you want for as long as you want and come back whenever you want. And that's a, that's a pretty nice feeling to have personally. Yeah, it really is. Like, yeah. And that, that would never have come to fruition without adventure racing. Like you just can't, you can try to train for it, but I don't like, I, I haven't found, I haven't found training that I'm willing to push myself hard enough to do outside of adventure racing or these, you know, bikepacking races to where you're ever going to train yourself just to, to get in it deep and then come out the other side with it. So October, not on a whim, we kind of like talked about it back and forth. Uh, we we're like, you know, just kind of like two weekends before, we're like, hey, you want to do the um, TNGA route, which is a really popular Trans- trans-, that's, that's trans North Georgia. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So we we're like, well, yeah, let's let's try that. And then we had the I call it couch confidence. We were like, well, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, if you're going to if we're going to do the TNGA, maybe we should go get it. 
which is, you know, you do it one way, flip around, do it the other way. Um, and, and again, I keep on mentioning Doug Ritzer. He's kind of my partner in crime of doing, um, you know, big, big things together. Um, he's the one I did expedition with Oregon with, um, Colorado trail, et cetera. So we were like, well, yeah, let, let's, let's give it a try. So we were actually pretty on track to do it. Um, we started at kind of central, uh, Mulberry Gap, made it to the start back through Mulberry Gap, made it to the finish, but there's this for anybody that's ridden the TMGA or hasn't, there's a section of highway outside of Dalton. That's, it was too sketchy for us, just kind of three lane highway, no shoulder. We hit it at the wrong time, kind of, um, right at dark, right at rush hour. And so we were like, uh, that's the worst. Yeah. It's like, um, let's not, let's not ride. <laughs> let's not ever ride back on this road again. So we ended up, I don't know, we did maybe 80% of a yo-yo of the TMGA, which is good. I think we had it in it had it in us as far as time and physical um but yeah we just didn't much like running the class four and your pack wrapped if you're not cool with it then yeah, yeah we had that experience in um we were in newfoundland myself and four friends we did the 600 the, the nine day 600 mile trailway across newfoundland is an abandoned railway system and for a chunk of it you have to get on the highway you have no choice but to ride on it and it was fine because the shoulder was six foot wide except when there was a we had to go over water and it, and it was non-existent. So whenever you cross the stream, you, you had to look over your shoulder and hope like the next 40 feet, no one was going to come roaring down the highway behind you. And we were like, we couldn't get off that road fast enough. Yeah. I, I hate those situations. You know, my buddy Doug was actually like, call it stress whistling. Like dude never whistles. He yeah. was just like, you know, stress whistling. Yeah, it was either so, stress whistle or scream. It was one of the other ones going to come out of him. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, that is what it is. I mean, I, I hate riding roads and I hate putting racers on roads. I know sometimes it's inevitable and I actually, a lot of people do that route and no one had mentioned it before. So maybe we're just, I don't want to say it's soft, but again, not fearless in the least. So maybe I'm just more averse to, <laughs> you know, having my, having planning on bigger adventures on bigger days. And I don't know. I guess so you checked off a lot of the big. So, uh, welcome to the dark zone, a bikepacking podcast. So you've um you you've checked off a lot of the the bigger, um the the, the have you done like the like the like the Western Wildlands route is very popular. There's the Arkansas High Country route that's popular now. Have, have you considered going out to the other big high name bikepacking routes? Yeah, those are all on our radar. It's just like which ones which ones do we want to do first? So yeah, those are definitely on our list of, of things to do. The Oregon Timber Trails a, a, a cool one that I definitely want to play on. Um, yeah, just some big ones. We actually want to do the um, Baja Divide. That one's on our list, but it's, you know, you're talking like these big, big routes that, you know, for us riding it the way that we want to ride it, you're talking, you know, three, four week um, investments. So yeah, it's one of these things where, you know, it's interesting because I was, I was reading through the notes on the on the breakdown bikepacking route and first of all I, I had a laugh you link to another site that talked about the the way that you're supposed to do self-supported bikepacking and i got a kick out of the one line that there are no entry fees prizes or support like they made it very clear like so why do you think people such as yourself and people such as me and adventure racers who go into bikepacking and adventure racers who who end up getting into schema and they get up they get into long distance uh pack rafting trips right the why do you think what is it about these people you and i included that we do these things yeah that's a good one so um I'll paraphrase a conversation that I had with my buddy, you know, riding the TNGA. 
and you know it, it was pretty I, I it was definitely pretty but it was the same pretty over and over so we had seen like the high ridge lines whole colors um so we had kind of become numb to the prettiness of it. So then it just became an exercise of, okay, we, we need to ride 70 plus miles a day, 10,000 feet a day um, to be able to do this. So then it became a, a numbers game, pushing the bike game, more so uh, let's, let's grind this out. And then, you know, we were pushing our bikes up the hill. And I think both of us just had that realization of what, like, why, why why are we doing this on a recreational capacity and should we be more so looking at doing these things to actually have fun and recreate and you know we haven't done as many big things as as other racers and that's cool like you said everybody's everybody's sense of accomplishment is different so we'll have racers that show up for the fig that finish a 12-hour race and they you know they're more excited than than me finishing a four day race. And that's cool. Like that's, that's how that works. Um, so I think it comes down to, and, and here's where, here's where I landed on. I think moving on in the future, I'll have a pocket of, of adventures that are like, I love, I love getting through things. I love the accomplishment of being in way over my head and seeing what happens. And then coming out the other side of it. Like, I love that aspect of, of adventure racing expeditions and these, um, you know, big bikepacking journeys. And so that's, that's one side of it. And I, I think that the expedition race next year, endless mountains, I think that will be one of those. Sure. There'll be, you know, fun times. And I have, you know, three teammates to, to have experiences with, but I mean, it's hard. It's just straight up hard. And we know it's hard. So I think that's one side of it. But I'm going to start exploring um, having fun. <laughs> I know it's a novel idea, but why in, in the past I've structured these adventures to where every adventure I would take is just a test of my metal. Like everyone was designed to, is this going to break me? And if it's not going to break me, can I do it twice? Or, you know, can I do it quicker? And like, I'm over that. I'm, <laughs> I'm old enough now to where if I need to test myself, I can, but I also need to sprinkle in a lot more, just fun things, stopping along the way, talking to people, you know, having those ice cream cones and being okay with it. Yeah, you do pass a point. I think everyone has a point in their life where they pass a certain age where you run out of the need to prove yourself to anybody. And therefore, yeah. it's you just it's doing your own thing and enjoying yourself. And you no longer need to check off a box to show the world you could do those things, which also only comes by having made it to a certain age. You survive some pretty challenging things in your life. And then we voluntarily done some really challenging things. And being on the other side of all of that gives you a sense of self-esteem and confidence, not cockiness, but confidence that lets you kind of travel your life in a certain way. Yeah, that's very refreshing to hear you put it that way. Like, I, I would hate to not hate, but it, I would like to think that I'm mature enough and old enough and confident enough to not have to rely on my peers to build me up or, or give me validation in what I'm doing. But if, if I'm only doing things to see if I can do them, to see if it breaks me, then I think there is a certain sense of that to where, yeah, I, I, don't think I need that anymore. Like <laughs> I've proved to myself that I, I can stick through it. I, I can't handle it. Sure. I can take on adventures that are designed specifically to break me. Um, but eh, what's the point? <laughs> Let's have a little more fun in life and not have to prove myself yeah, over and over that I can't. Yeah, do you it. no longer have to clobber yourself into pieces to prove anything to anybody. 
Yeah. How do you deal with the post post race post adventure adventure race blues when you get home and it's three days later and you're like, wow, that's behind me, and the next thing is far away. Yeah, you know, I do a lot better with it than a lot of racers I've heard. Um, some of it really like <laughs> really gets in their head and they're bummed out for quite a while. But um, I use like the same mentality of you know they say you're supposed to plan your next vacation while you're on vacation so um especially like we talked about you know you 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 named off three or four bikepacking routes popular ones that i haven't done and it's like i know i have this like list of 50 things that i want to do and you know probably a list of half a dozen that are actually attainable and reachable in the next two years so even though i may finish a big adventure and then you know eat for the next five days and kind of miss the just being out in the woods and you know the the extreme silence of it all at the same time it's like well that's okay i know i know something other something else is coming up that's just as big and just as major yeah and this, this is a bit of a peak right you're on the you're in a big race you're having a great time enjoying yourself you and your teammates and your your that great challenge and and then there's that's a peak and there's a bit of a valley when it's over and you're kind of home and you're figuring things out and you know, you're you're sitting at a desk again and you're doing your gig and then that kind of is straight for a while and then it kind of goes back up when you get ready for the next adventure i think that's interesting to our i think we're a i think we're a, a lot of doctoral studies waiting to be written the the attitude and the way that we approach life and the way that we see these things because this is a common pattern among adventure racers you know i've talked to enough of them through the podcast and i've heard enough stories that that's not an uncommon thing that there's something built in the dna of certain people that they enjoy consistent challenge over time. And they like to live their life in many ways from challenge to challenge to challenge. And in between having a great life experience, it's not like it's all black or white, right? It's terrible and it's, it's, and it's great. But I think that's definitely part of our personality that we see. And there are people's personalities too. We're like, they think we're absolutely out of our minds for doing this. Like they have no clue why we would voluntarily throw ourselves into these things. But I don't know why people choose to crochet, right? It's one of these things. We just don't get it. Yeah, we've seen that too with our racers. <clears throat> like we'll see the same paces over and over. They'll have good races, bad races. Some of them will, you know, <clears throat> nearly break them, but I don't know. Yeah, it, I, I, I agree. Something in the DNA that it's like you almost need it as part of your not boring life, but it's definitely a rush to get out and do to do big things, to test yourself, to see big things, to you know, just get outside. It's an important aspect of, you know, <laughs> who we are and who we have been for the last, whatever, 200,000 years. Yeah, it's great stuff. And there's always a point in the race too, where it's just, it arrives at some point where it's just you and the maps and your teammates and you're out there by yourself and just got to figure, usually when something goes bad, right? Your, your pack ref falls apart, you're stuck high up on a mountain, whatever it might be. That's when you, that's when the race really comes alive for a lot of people. So, so great stuff. Great, great stuff, Sean. So you have, you have well over a decade involved in adventure racing. You've, you've, you've done big races. You've done um, expedition level races. You've, you've ran that you've done the fig, you run the fig, you've done the, the, um, the breakdown, a race that I, I just loved. What does your gut tell you about the trends in adventure racing? As you kind of look at the way the sport is going and you're an interesting, you're an interesting person to have a conversation because you've not that you're retired from adventure racing by any means, but you seem to have gotten your fill of doing the smaller races. You like to swing at the big pitches, which is where you are right now in your life, right? You like the big expedition races. What trends are you seeing in adventure racing that you think are worth for our listeners to think about other race directors to hear about? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. We thought, and you know, I'm not removed from the, from the hum of adventure racing, but 
I know there was this big bump of, you know, or what we thought was going to be this huge bump of eco challenge and, you know, riding that wave into, you know, cash dollars and bigger races and hundreds of people showing up for these events. Um, and so when we were kind of having the discussion with, you know, people in the know and people that were guiding the sport, it was all this, this well, what is adventure racing going to turn into if we end up with 300 people showing up to a race and, you know, 40% of them are completely new racers and, you know, trail runners, not really sure what adventure racing is, but it's been on Amazon prime. So it has to be freaking cool. Um, so that was this kind of big fear that I had with, um, this year's race, like, well, who's going to show up and what's it going to turn into. But I think by and large, um, from what I can tell, the sport is still, remain super you know niche and like a lot of people still have no idea what adventure racing is or why anyone would ever want to adventure race um and that's like probably not the best business owner but that's a good thing for me like i don't want adventure racing to turn into this you know mass market sport that's just you know dumbed down what i would call it to make it um make it mass appeal like i truly believe in my heart of hearts that adventure racing should be inherently hard like maybe that doesn't jive with a lot of people in newer races but if it weren't hard if it weren't you know map and compass or you know all of these different disciplines and the longer distances then i don't know what we would call it but to me that's not adventure racing so i'm i'm refreshed to see that at least in our neck of the woods it hasn't been dumbed down that there's still a lot of hard races and that the race directors have, you know, held their guns on not making it, you know, what we would call easy. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I've seen. Not, not that huge blow up. Like, uh Oh, where, where is our sport headed? That's a Grant Kellyan. When he did the um, on team new England back in 2018, he talked about that at the beginning of the race, how there's only so much capacity on race courses for people to, to get out there and to be involved because, you only drop so many races on the course at any one given time, right? And you run the risk of watering down the event to the point where it's just, it's people are just, it, it's it's something other than adventure racing. Call, call it what you want, but it's a term that goes on there. And I think it's tough to scale too. I think you're spot on with that. I think you're absolutely right. I think that's a good point. And I think it's, I think it's nice that you, you recognize the fact that the, the collectively that's not really happening, right? There, there's no, there's no Walmart, of adventure racing race directors showing up and calling it an adventure race and where it's everything but an adventure race and that there's a certain soul, a certain ethic that goes with that. But that's going to be a constant tension in our sport, right? The idea of you want to keep adventure racing, adventure racing. You also want to make it appealing to people who want to, who want to come on board, recognizing that there are some people that the way that adventure racing is viewed as being, it will never appeal to them that they just, they're not comfortable racing that way and going through that suffering and that challenge. And that's the, that's the that's the the balancing act, I guess, that we're all looking for as race directors and racers and people who are involved in the sport. Yeah, and I, I think that is, you know, I know there's a few full time race directors out there, and I know it's important. Again, probably not the best business owner mentality. It's important to make money and you know keep the sport alive. But at the same time, I don't think that we as race directors um, need to need to water it down to make that happen. And I think, you know, at least the race directors that I know and respect, they certainly have not done that. Um, I know initially our turnaround of first time racers, absolutely terrible. And it was like, well, what can we do to make sure that our first time racers have a good experience 
and that they come back. And I mean, we like, we tried really hard. We tried like shorter races, um, you know, like six hour races, um, still being respectful to what adventure racing truly is. And we just landed on the fact that this is not for everyone. It's simply not for everyone. Um, and it's okay if you race it and you don't like it, cool. Good for you for giving it a try. But we, we eventually ended up being like, you know, we cannot keep spinning our wheels, um, trying to get all of our first time racers to come back for the second race because in doing so there has to be a give and take um and we did not want to take away from you know our big courses our hard courses that really challenge you know the elite racers that show up so yeah we implemented a few things to help them come back but again <laughs> it's not for everyone and i i think that's the appeal by and large to people that do adventure racing is they know like they know it's not for everybody Thank you, listeners, for joining us. As promised, Sean was a thoughtful, experienced, and insightful guest. We're grateful for his time. Listeners are encouraged to visit www.361adventures.com to learn more about their excellent race organization. That's the numbers, 361adventures.com. I have the breakdown bikepacking route on my to-do list for the upcoming season. It's not to be missed, and I can't wait to give it a try. If you have enjoyed this episode, please pay a visit to your podcast streaming platform of choice and leave us a review. That is the best way to spread the word. Also, always feel free to reach out to me at brian at ardarkzone.com. Your feedback and guest suggestions are always welcome. Again, thank you to our sponsors at tansynavigation.org for their support. And thank you listeners for joining us in the Dark Zone. Have fun out there and be safe.